Welcome to Unlocking Impact. I'm your host, Sarah Schoenfeld, CEO of the Trade Impact Foundation. In this podcast, we explore issues at the intersection of the global economy, sustainability, and human rights. Today's discussion is with Ben Shepard, a trade economist and development consultant. Ben is the principal of Developing Trade Consultants, and I talked to him today about the impact of trade policy on people living in a country and how it can be used as a positive tool for development. Just recently, trade policy has shifted to encompass a wider definition of development that includes not only economic development, but also non-economic development. Think of things like fair labor practices and gender equality. And the overall goal of this development has been to achieve a higher quality of life for everybody. Ben breaks down how this has changed and what it means to be a trade economist today and how trade policies can really trickle down to impact us all on an individual level. Ben is a trade economist and development consultant who is an expert in trade policy, global value chains, trade facilitation, and global trade modeling, just to name a few. He's worked with organizations like the World Bank, the OECD, and the UN, and he's published more than 30 articles based on his research. Ben was a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Niehaus Center for Globalization and Governance. He holds a PhD in economics from France's leading public policy school, Sciences Po, and has completed graduate studies at Cambridge University in the UK and the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. Here is the first part of our conversation, and the second part of our conversation will be out next episode, and we'll cover the role of trade and trade policy in the promotion of gender rights around the world. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on Unlocking Impact. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So I thought first you could just tell us a bit about what it is that you do and, you know, what your work is like. Yeah, sure. So I'm a a trade economist and international development consultant. And, you know, when I say that, I'm conscious that it covers a a sort of huge range of territories. So what I do is is one kind of particular bit of the whole range. But what I thought I might do to to just sort of introduce, you know, the, the mechanics of, you know, what my work looks like is to talk about some of the stuff that motivates me. And for someone like me, you know, I, I used to travel a lot in the pre-pandemic days, and so I'd be going around all sorts of different countries all over the world. And one thing that fascinates me is the difference in living standards that we see from one place to another. And so somewhere that, I, that I've worked and travelled to is Bangladesh. And, you know, there are two things that uh, really fascinate me about it. One is just the difference with the standard of living that we have here in the US. If I go back to 2000, um, per capita GDP even adjusting for differences in prices and things was about 4% of the level in the US. So you're talking about people with a radically different way of living. But 20 years later, by 2020, they'd increased that number to 8%. So they basically doubled their income in terms of the, the proportion of uh, US income, um, which had also been growing over the same time. So, you know, I see something like that happen and I think to myself, okay, you know, First, what can we learn from this radical difference that we see between countries? And secondly, what can we learn from this incredible experience that a country like Bangladesh has had in growing very quickly and enabling its people to to have more income in a relatively short space of time, um, just two decades? 
Um, another country I've worked in is Vietnam, and there, what's most striking, you know, they've also seen the, this very rapid increase in income in a short period of time, but it's the rate of poverty reduction that is very striking. So in 2002, about 70% of the population in Vietnam was living in poverty as defined by the kind of international poverty line. By 2020, that was down to just under 7%. So they'd done this wow. incredibly rapid and far-reaching change. And so the international development part of what I do is trying to learn from experiences like that and sort of distill the knowledge and then see how we can apply that other places. So, you know, really everyone would like to have the sort of experience that these countries have, have had. And so how can we replicate that? How can we do it at scale? And, of course, what can we learn about what government policy uh, has to do with it all? And the particular part that I look at being a trade economist is trade policy. And, you know, I'm very modest about what trade policy actually does in all of this. I think it plays a role. So both Bangladesh and Vietnam, to use those two examples, um, have used trade policy uh, very cleverly to reach their development objectives. But it is only part of the story. There's a lot else uh, going on there. So, uh, so you know, that that's what motivates me. And then the sort of work that I do is really towards the research end of all of that. So it's a lot of quantitative work, modelling, all this sort of thing. Sometimes I work in teams with people who are doing more qualitative work, case studies, and But, you know, the overall objective is always to learn from these sorts of experiences uh, that we see around the world and then to advise governments, uh, advise international organisations like the World Bank and the UN on, you know, how, how we can do more of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I see that you're so passionate about those different aims. And so when I hear, you know, GDP, it's funny because sometimes, you know, you hear the word GDP, it sounds very impersonal, you know, the, the country's GDP. Okay. But really, as you're pointing out, right, it, it trickles down to one person's income, right? If you start to see even a small increase in income, then you're going to see better, you know, like you said, standard of living, what I'd call, you know, one of the human rights, right? If you have access to water, access to greater medical supplies and me medical treatment, you know, these are the kinds of things that you'll see following a country that has greater economic growth. So all these things are so tied together. And, I, and you know, I, I too am passionate about a lot of the pieces that you said. It's just funny. I feel like sometimes we speak different languages, but we're talking about very similar concepts. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's, uh, you, you know, that, that's absolutely true. And, and you know, you're, you're right to call out my economist speak because uh, G GDP does sound terribly impersonal. But, you know, it's the money that people have in their pockets. And, of course, that's not everything. But a big part of development these days is actually looking at other measures of uh, poverty and deprivation. So we, we as economists do have a love of quantifying everything. You know, that that is something that, that we definitely always try and do. But, you know, you can also see this when, when you go to these countries. Um, a, a key indicator that we use uh, when we're talking about poverty is child, childhood stunting. So these, these are kids who are unusually short for their age. And the reason they're unusually short is that they haven't had access to protein in their diet. And, of course, all of that changes. If you think of the groups that we've seen uh, shoot up in height, and, you know, China is a great example of this. A average height has been increasing pretty substantially over time due to increased protein in the diet. And I, I hesitate to use a term like trickle-down because I think here in the US, you know, that's got such a, a kind of connotation of a particular type of economics. But, but right. you're right. There is this movement from 
kind of big picture government policies down to things that actually make a difference to people's lives, whether it's access to food, access to healthcare, access to education, all these sorts of things. And you're, you're right, we do sometimes speak different languages. But for me, the sort of language that you're talking about, seeing these things as, as, as human rights, as things that people are entitled to, that sits pretty well with how I see the world as well. Yeah. And you talk about trade policy and the role of trade policy. I mean, first of all, can we just I guess for for many who are not involved with international trade or trade policy, how would you define trade policy? Like what sort of parts of, you know, geopolitical policy do you consider in the realm of trade policy? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And it's one that doesn't have a particularly easy answer because Mm -hmm. the domain of trade policy has expanded a lot over time. So if you'd ask someone this question in the 1960s, they would have said trade policy is tariffs. And indeed, when you sit in an international economics class, uh, still most of what you talk about is tariffs. So tariffs are just taxes that are applied at the border. So they're taxes that apply to imports that don't apply to what we produce uh, domestically. So nearly all countries uh, apply some sort of tariffs. And so part of what we do as international economists is to figure out the costs and benefits of applying different sorts of tariffs. But, you know, you're, you're right that trade policy isn't that simple anymore. So if we think of the sorts of policies that are dealt with in the World Trade Organization uh, as the kind of global body that, that has a remit specifically on trade, then it also covers a lot of what are called non-tariff measures. So these are broader issues of law and regulation, which are not tariffs, but have effects that are a little bit like tariffs. That is to say, They either change the price of traded goods or they change the quantity of goods that are traded. So really, under the umbrella of trade policy now, we talk about a whole bunch of things that aren't just border measures. We go uh, what's called behind the border to look at regulatory measures that affect the way in which uh, goods move from one market to another around the world. I I should say, you know, part of what's changed as well uh, in the last 25 years is that a huge sector of the economy that was excluded from uh, the remit of trade policy is now part of it, and that's services. So if we think of an economy like the United States, uh, it's mostly a services economy. You and I both work in services. Um, Probably most of the people who are listening to this work in services. It's a huge economic aggregate, covers everything from education to healthcare to uh, research and development, scientific, professional occupations, finance, all these sorts of things. And it was only in 1995 that that actually became part of the global trading system with the the General Agreement on Trade and Services in the WTO. So, you know, all all of that is a bit of a long answer to say that, you know, on on an expansionist view, uh, really most kinds of laws and policies that affect the movements of goods and services across borders are now considered part of trade policy. And it very much matches up with what we're seeing Right. We're seeing so many different expanded uses of trade policy, whether it's more on a, on a punitive, even looking at tariffs. Right. Traditionally, tar- tariffs were very focused, very narrow in their use in terms of whether it's protecting domestic production and other other pieces. But now we're seeing it, you know, even tariffs coming out in a punitive way to reprimand other countries for certain behaviors. Um, wow. So it's just kind of, yeah, it's really interesting that as the the political side, I think, um, as we're seeing the expanded use of specific trade policies, it's interesting that you are also explaining that we're seeing an expanded definition of what is trade policy. 
you know, back in the good old days, when you wrote a trade agreement, it was basically about tariffs. It was a very short agreement and then a very long set of schedules where you just had these lists of numbers saying this is what our current tariff rate is and we're going to cut it to zero when we sign the agreement. And that was basically what the agreement looked like. Now, trade agreements haven't looked like that in a very long time. So you're right that the geopolitics determines a little bit what goes into it. I mean, it's partly economic interest and, and you know, recognising how the economy is changing and how trade is changing, but there is also very definitely a geopolitical dimension So now when you look at a trade agreement, uh, there are chapters on intellectual property, there are chapters on services, there are chapters on competition law, there there are chapters on gender, which we'll we'll get to in a second. Um, One that we're seeing that I think is a really interesting one is digital. And of course, you know, this really, I think, is is a perfect example of something that is both about the changing economy. So particularly over the last couple of years, as we've all moved online, we've seen this tremendous rise in the importance of the digital economy. But at the same time, countries have got very, very different uh, regulatory approaches. So if you think of even the difference between Europe and the United States, um, the digital economy is a lot more heavily regulated in general, you know, through privacy regulations and this sort of thing in Europe than it is in the United States. And then, of course, you've got the Chinese model, uh, which is to say that we're going to control very, very strictly who can come in and offer digital services in our market. So you have these different regulatory regimes that are competing in an area like digital all around the world. And countries, in fact, try and export their regulatory schemes uh, through trade agreements. So I think that's something very interesting that that we're seeing. And that's a very definite dynamic in trade agreements at the moment. Um, We also see it in other areas. So uh, something like competition policy is a a good example. And and one way that that plays out uh, very controversially in Geneva at the WTO is in talking about state-owned enterprises. So there are countries that are members of the WTO uh, and, you know, the WTO has a certain set of obligations that you have to accept when you join and you go through this process called accession where you negotiate all of that with your trading partners. But, But basically it's a it's a set of obligations, but it doesn't cover a whole bunch of factors. So there are countries who are members of the WTO. China is the one that stands out, but it's not the only one, where state-owned enterprises are still an important part of the economy. And so there's this whole discussion about how compatible that is with an open global trading system. And of course, there you've got both an abstract discussion about what a freer trading environment looks like? Does it include these sorts of firms? Are they getting in the way of free competition? These sorts of questions. But there's also a very concrete element where we here in the United States say, well, that's not something that we've done to any great extent. I mean, of course, there's government intervention in the economy in lots of different ways, but it's typically not through state-owned enterprises in the United States model. And we would like to push back against what we see in China Uh, not just because we think it's better for the world, but because we think it's better for us. Our companies are going to be able to better access uh, Chinese markets if they can open up some of the space that's currently taken by state-owned enterprises. So trade policy is one of these areas, and I I think it's true of diplomacy in general. Um, You know, the the ambassador's job, to a certain extent, is to dress up national interest in kind of global claims. And we, as people sitting outside that, you know, I'm, I'm not a diplomat. I sit in rooms with them, but, but my work is fundamentally different. I think part of our job is to try and parse out uh, what these different claims actually look like. When, when are we trying to genuinely uh, help someone in a different country, in a different situation? And when are we doing something that sort of can be dressed up to look like that, but is actually just helping ourselves? 
And I think we as, you know, as, as the United States and applies to Europe and, and, and other countries as well, um, we do have to be very careful with just how we advance uh, some of these issues. And I think dialogue is is a really key part of it. Yeah. You know, when we talk about, first of all, this, you know, with regards to the state-owned enterprises and how countries and how the WTO will respond and, and go forward to address the use of state-owned enterprises, it's like, you know, so much of it just comes down to the very simple notion of what is fair? What is mm-hmm. fair trade? What is fair? You know, what what is okay under WTO policies specifically? What is okay under, you know, when we look at U.S. law, what's violating the specific statutes, but also just overall what's fair? And I think that it's, you know, we're at a point in time right now where that that definition is not clear. And, you know, it's kind of this also this like back and forth of, well, if if you think our state owned enterprises are not fair, we can point to something in your governance structure and your democracy that's not fair. But something I love about trade in general and an important part of trade policy and something I hope we see more in terms of trade policy is what you talked about before in terms of, okay, pragmatically, right? What's the takeaway? What's the impact, practically speaking? Even if we're going to be certainly understanding that, yes, whether it's a philosophical or just kind of theoretical discussion over whether state-owned enterprises are fair or not, no matter what, they exist. So what do we yeah. do about it? And so that's where trade policy and then, you know, the implementation of those those policies come into play. And if you're a company, it's all really, really hard because you're trying to, you know, balance all these different values that you have, that the company has, but also you certainly want to be in compliance with U.S. law and, and European laws. And at the same time, you also want to do business in China and other countries that have state-owned enterprises. So it's it's this huge, huge issue that we're going to see unfolding in so many ways. But so much of it will, in, in fact, be centered on international trade. And a lot mm-hmm. of that has to do with the fact that, you know, China has a lot of our trading global value chains, right, wrapped up in China and other countries that, that may not share exactly the same governance structure and, and democratic values that, that we are used to in the U.S. and other countries. Yeah, and I, I think you're, you're hitting on a really important point here, which is that, you know, the, the WTO hasn't been able to negotiate very much uh, since it was founded. Right. So, I mean, there, there have been a couple of agreements that, that have come out. So there's been the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which is the only kind of major headline agreement that it's negotiated uh, in its entire lifetime. So the WTO was born in uh, 1995. We've just had what's called a plurilateral, so an, an agreement involving only some WTO members on domestic regulation and services. And there have been various other sort of declarations, initiatives, these sorts of things. But we haven't had the big bang trade negotiation that uh, everyone was kind of expecting that the WTO would produce in in much less time than the 25, 26 years that that have gone past uh, since it was founded. And the reason for that, I I think you're uh, hitting exactly right, it's that we do have these very, very different economic and political systems all around the world. And part of what the trading system needs to do is to find ways for businesses and people within these different systems to interface with each other, to deal with each other, to trade with each other, while accepting that we might not uh, be able to change the other guy's system as much as we might like to. Everyone's got an incentive uh, to try and make the systems that we see elsewhere more like our own because it makes it easier for us to, to, to do stuff. We're obviously, you know, reducing transaction costs if we don't have to adapt to every market that we enter. 
Um, but politically, that's never going to be an achievable uh, objective. And I think we've seen that change uh, pretty fundamentally uh, with the role that many of the larger developing countries are now playing uh, in the WTO. So China, since its accession in uh, 2001, India has always played a strong role. Brazil has always played a strong role. Um, and, and the African group um, increasingly is very, is very active. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an open question for diplomacy and international law uh, in general as to how we get these different systems to interface and how we get people to accept that we're going to have to move in different environments um, depending on, on where we are and what we're doing. And it's a question very specifically uh, for international trade. You know, again, if, if I can hark back to what uh, people in the previous generation think of as the good old days, when you were just negotiating tariffs, what was fair? Well, fair was basically I could walk away from the deal saying, okay, I've made some cuts in my tariffs that I didn't particularly want to make, but the other guy made some cuts in their tariffs that they didn't particularly want to make, and that's sort of fair. We've, we've, we've both sort of given a little bit and we've gotten a little bit. But now that trade policy is a lot more about regulation, how do we decide what's fair? And I don't think anyone has really answered that question yet. Either analytically, of course, there's work out there, you know, trying to talk about what all of this means in an academic sense. Um, but very practically, how do we get countries to sit in a room? Now, 160-some uh, countries to sit in a room and all agree on an outcome that's fair when we're talking about their own regulatory structures. I, I think it's an open question as to how we do that. I, I don't have the answer and, and I don't know that anyone has the answer at this point. So that was the first half of our conversation. And next week, we'll be discussing the role of trade and trade policy in promoting global gender rights. But for today's part of the conversation, I really hope that you walk away with the understanding that international trade and international development has really been impactful in terms of poverty alleviation, economic growth, you know, and economic growth leads to increased standard of living, right? Access to food, water, basic other necessities, so many other things that we consider part of individuals' human rights. And as Ben explained, trade policy has really expanded. And don't you think that therefore the potential for real impact has really expanded? I think so. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you join us next episode as we continue the discussion with Ben. We'll zero in on gender rights and the real and potential impact that trade development and policy can have on gender rights around the world. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.